I'm Tom Turner. Many of, I, many of you I know through the American Bonanza Society. I am the executive director of our ABS Air Safety Foundation, which is the educational and technical arm of ABS. If you are a Beechcraft pilot, mechanic, instructor, or enthusiast, and you are not already a member of ABS, please come see us directly across from the theater in the woods. Uh, we have a large display there and a large uh, airplane you'll see a picture of here in a moment, a bonanza down there. Uh, but come on down and learn more about how we can help you support your flying or your customers flying in your aircraft. I also, as Steve mentioned, do something called Mastery Flight Training with hyphens in it, mastery-training.com. Uh, this is my weekly uh, flying lessons update. Uh, what I do is I look at some of the mishap reports or other events that are making the rounds of the internet in the previous weeks. And they may teach us some lessons. We, we, I can't tell you in the first few weeks after an event occurs why that specific accident or that action took place. What we can do, however, is to use that as a trigger to discuss some of the things that might have happened. So if you ever see yourself in a similar situation, you'll understand some of the lessons that uh, might have prevented that last accident. So you're welcome to uh, subscribe. It's free at uh, that website. And I've got it up at the uh, end of the presentation as well. All right. This is the thing I get to fly. This is pretty cool. So if you come down by the ABS tent, it's our display plane this year. It's a 1981 A36 Bonanza. So I just thought I'd throw a picture up there. Uh, in appreciation to any of the vendors, I don't see anybody out here, but uh, we've had a, a tremendous amount of donor and vendor support to uh, upgrade this airplane. Uh, we use it primarily for training flight instructors, in some cases individual pilots, but they usually have their own airplanes. Uh, we're going to be doing a lot of video production to use this as an educational tool, so you'll see that around as well. All right, who out there considers themselves to be a safe pilot? Who is a safe pilot? All right, everybody else, we're going to talk. All right. What does it mean to be a safe pilot? What, what, if you say you're a safe pilot, what does that mean? No accidents. All right. There's the bar. When your passengers or your friends or your family or even your fellow pilots say, this guy is a really good pilot, what they're really saying is, I've not seen any evidence that he has destroyed any aircraft yet. <laughs> when, very unfortunately, a bad event occurs and the news crews are out showing the pictures of some horrific, horrific event, there is almost always a neighbor or friend or fellow pilot and what do they say to the news crew? He was such a good pilot. But bad things happen. Bad things happen a lot, even to people who are very good pilots because we always have to maintain our vigilance. So what I'm going to talk about today are ways that we can become even better pilots than the minimum standards require so that we can be more vigilant. And then I'm going to show you some specific techniques that you may or may not elect to incorporate into the way you fly your airplanes that are going to help you not only fly to proficiency, but to what I call fly to mastery. Now, to pursue that level of mastery, we always have to figure out what it is we're talking about. So let's talk about a couple of terms. I'm going to go all dictionary on you here. My wife said I should have been a college professor, but let's define a couple of terms. What does currency mean? Are you a current pilot? Are you current? First off, is everybody here a pilot or a mechanic, but a pilot? All right. If you're not, you're going to get there. That's why you're in this place. All right. So what does it mean to be? Who is a current pilot? Who is current as a pilot in some type of aircraft? All right. You too, Wally? Okay, great. All right. What does it mean to be current in your airplane? 
We're going to come back to that in just a second. Who is proficient in flying your aircraft? Raise your hand if you're proficient in your airplane. Okay? What does it mean to be proficient? Well, guess what? Neither one of those terms is identified. Sorry, guys. This is their territory. But neither one of those is, terms is defined in the general definitions of the federal air regulations. They're thrown out several times in the process of reading through the regulations, but it never really tells you what they mean. So you might, might, might look at things in the context of how they were used. Currency is really, as far as the FAA is concerned, talking about recency of experience. The requirements for recency of experience are listed in various federal air regulations. First, we have 6156, which is the flight review requirement, and a few other miscellaneous requirements in there. You have to meet those stipulations in order to be current as a pilot. Right? So flight review is the great example of that. You have to take a flight review or something in lieu of a flight review. FAA Wings works, so I do encourage you to participate in the Wings program. You have to do something every two years as a minimum in order to be recent, have the recency of experience required to fly an airplane. Now, anyone here from outside of the United States? Okay, where are you from, sir? UK. From the UK. Uh, I know a lot of people in Australia, I don't know the UK, but basically the Australian regulatory system is very similar to, to the UK, the, 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 the British regulatory system. There are probably some differences, and I know the Australians are changing it a lot, but when I go to Australia, you know, oh, around here, people complain about, oh, we've got to do this and this, and the rules and the regulations mean I have to do this and this and this, and we think about the FAA as sometimes being restrictive. I'll tell you that's exactly opposite. My friends in Australia are amazed at how much freedom we have under our federal air regulations. The FAA essentially allows us to do almost anything we want to do within some boundaries in our aircraft, as long as it's not something that is specifically restricted in terms of a regulation or a, uh, a limitation on an airplane. Further, they allow us to take a lot of risk for ourselves. Now, if we start carrying passengers, or even more so if we start carrying passengers for hire, or something else for hire, then we start to get more regulations that we have to comply with. And, and they all are based on protecting that other person. The flight review is a really good example of that. I take my flight review today. What is today? The 27th of July. So when does my flight review expire? The end of July, two years from now, 24 calendar months from now, right? So I can wait, if I want, one year, 11 months, 29 days, can I go jump in an airplane and fly? Heck yeah, as long as I don't do what? What? What is that one thing? Carry a passenger. I've got a lot of freedom to fly that airplane. I've got a lot of responsibility to have recent experience, but that two-year thing is, is good enough. Now, there are a couple other places in the regulations that it talks about recency of experience requirement. One of them is the 90-day landing requirements. You have to do three takeoffs and landings in the last 90 days to carry a passenger. If it's a tailwheel airplane, it has to be a full stop because they want to make sure that you get the full tailwheel experience. And if it's night, they want you to make sure it's full stop probably. I, I, I like the idea of it. As a matter of fact, I rarely do touch and goes, and not, certainly not in retractable gear airplanes. But there are certain requirements for recency of experience to carry a passenger. So they're not doing it to protect us. They're carrying it 
doing it to protect the people we're flying around because they, they believe in us and we have to give them something to believe in. There are also instrument recency experiences and uh, anyone here use uh, train, aviation training devices, flight simulators like Redbirds and things, and I'm not talking about the, the desktop things. Uh, the regulations here in the States have changed and I think it's really good now that we'll be able to get the same credit for instrument currency in a recognized training device as we can in the airplane as well. So we have a lot of different ways to get current but or recent but we can we have to maintain some recency of experience on instruments. There's also the other one and it's kind of interesting is there's also a recency of experience rule in 6157 for the use of night vision goggles. So if you're uh, if you're going to go all Rambo in your airplane and use night vision, you have, to, you have to have recent experience for that. So we talk about currency. Currency doesn't really tell us anything, but to meet the minimum standards of currency, we have to adhere to these rules of recency. You can think that, okay, I, uh, I took my flight review today, and one year, 11 months, 29 days from now, I can go jump in an airplane without a passenger. Is that a real good idea? Eh, probably not, but I have the recency of experience. Proficiency. Proficiency isn't defined by the uh, FAA either. Uh, the Oxford Dictionary definition is competence or skill, competence or skill in doing or using something. All right, so I'm competent. Who here was a military in, in the U.S. military? All right, any officers out there? Probably a few officers. All right, if you were, if so, you remember uh, uh, naval or army or air force? Our army, all right, what? Air Guard. Air, okay, Air Force, all right, so I speak Air Force. I was in the Air Force. The worst thing you could possibly have written on your officer efficiency rating, which was the usually annual report on how well you were doing your jobs as an officer, the absolute worst thing they could write is that you were competent because that meant you weren't amazing. Competent was the fallback word that, okay, well, we're not going to drum this guy out of the service right now, but we're just going to say he kind of squeaks by. So competence is skill in doing something, but that's not really a goal to attain. That's not something to shoot for. All right, where is proficiency discussed in the federal air regulations? It's not discussed as a term, but it is used as a term in the context of other things. You take an instrument proficiency check. You take a pilot and command proficiency check under some Part 121 operations, and and I think 91K also. But anyhow, a two-pilot crew in a fractional has to do a, a pilot proficiency check, and there it is. You also not only have to be current, you have to be proficient to operate those night vision goggles, but you have a proficiency check. Uh, if you take an instrument proficiency check, what is that? What do they mean by proficiency? Basically, they're saying. You meet the standards to pass the check ride. You're proficient. You meet that minimum standard. So we, we have to struggle to maintain a minimum standard. Actually, the bar is pretty low. To be current, we have recency of experience. And to be proficient, we can still pass the check ride. So the question is, could you pass your check rides today? Who here feels if we went out there and everything was on the line, you could get with an examiner and pass your private pilot check ride right now? All right, I hope the answer is yes. Now, there's always a little trepidation about it. How about the instrument? You're good at your DME arcs and your partial panel NDB inverted engine failures. Yeah, okay, great. All right, again, these are the minimum standards, the absolute minimum you're allowed to get away with 
in order to fly your airplane and exercise these privileges. And by emphasizing minimum standards, a lot of instructors emphasize minimum standards. Well, yeah, he can barely hold 400 feet in a steep turn, but that's okay because a private pilot check right allows you to do that. All right, if, they, if your instructor or yourself, you do not hold yourself to some higher standard, then you're in one of the situations where you're barely getting by, and when the day comes where you might need to exercise a little bit more skill under stress or an emergency, you might not have it in you. So we want to do better than that. I want my worst day as a pilot to be the day that because I'm tired and because I'm just not feeling quite right or whatever, I shouldn't be flying anyhow, but I want my worst day as a pilot to be the day that I could barely pass my check ride. That's what I'm aiming for. I'm not sure I'm there, but that's what I'm aiming for. So I've got to be higher up, uh, up than that on an average, on a daily basis in order to have that as my fallback position. You know, I, one of the things I dislike is people say, hey, I'm going to do a flight review. What should I study? It's like, you should know this stuff. All right, sure, go look at this, this, and this, but you should know this stuff. That's what we're verifying, that you remember all of this thing. Okay. All right, so these are minimum standards for exercising your privileges. We're going to try to do better. We're going to go beyond currency and proficiency into an area that I call mastery of your aircraft. Now, those of you who read my thing, uh, my blog, uh, I call it mastery flight training, and some people call it mastery of flight, and a lot of people call it that. I didn't choose that word lightly. It's not there any longer. It used to be in the old practical test standards. There was a statement for examiners that was the summation of what they were looking for in an applicant during a check ride. It said that the candidate, that the pilot would, quote, demonstrate mastery of the aircraft with the successful outcome of a maneuver never seriously in doubt. And that's where I got the name from, and that's what I'm aiming for. Some point where it's never a matter, it's, it's never going to be in a doubt that at least I can meet the minimums and hopefully I can do better. So we want to aim for mastery. And I'm going to give you some ideas from tech, for some techniques about that here in a moment. Mastery is more than proficiency. It is comprehensive knowledge and display of great skill in a subject or accomplishment. That sounds cool. I also talk a little bit about command. Command is taught in the military. Command is not really taught very much in civilian flying circles. No one really goes out of their way to discuss. Your flight, your flight instructor before your private probably didn't spend a lot of time talking about these are the responsibilities and actions of being in command of your aircraft. But then you pass your check ride and suddenly now you may be pilot in command. So what is command? Going to the dictionary, that tells us it is to exercise direct authority or, I love this, to dominate as from an elevated place. Now, wouldn't you, as a pilot, like to have people say, you know, this guy dominates flying from an elevated place. Or if you're an instructor and you send someone up to an examiner when they're done with the check ride, your pilot really dominated this flight. That's what I'm aiming for. I mean, I've got this. And I'm constantly working on that. And that's what I aim for. That's what I suggest you try as well. So master and command give us a couple of things. You're retaining and constantly improving your flying skills. I used to teach in simulators at Beachfield in Wichita. I taught for Flight Safety International for a few years. And I taught in Bonanzas and Barrens and, and Beechcraft Dukes. And the twin engine pilots especially showed me something over four years of doing that. The pilots that came back to do multi-engine training in the simulator once a year or so always needed work to get back up to a minimum level of proficiency, be able to pass their check ride, in engine failure scenarios close to the ground. 
And we would spend most of a refresher training course with those people just getting them back up to the minimum standards of their check ride. So if they had lost an engine on the way to the training event, they probably were not up to handling it. The people that came back every six to nine months would generally still retain those skills and would we could work and get them better and better over the years. We had something called a pro card back then. If you flew the airplane to ATP standards, whether or not you held an ATP certificate, if you flew consistently to ATP standards during the course, we gave you this extra special card that the insurance companies like and it make feel, makes people justifiably feel good about themselves. And it was the guys that would be back on a regular basis at about the third or fourth time that they would get there. They would have built up their skills. So that, so, Mastery is always working on new ways to improve your skills. Proficiency is only the first step. That's the minimum level. Striving for mastery and command of your aircraft all the time is what's going to make you a better pilot and make you, by default, safe. How do you, if, if I were to tell you, go fly safely, hey, have a safe flight, what does, what does that mean? All right? Have a safe flight. You, everybody has a different tolerance for the word safety. It's a very fuzzy logic sort of term. It's not, and, and, and for most people, as we said at the very beginning, most of it means I didn't have an accident, therefore I was safe. If instead I say, all right, go out there and make sure that you hold your altitudes plus or minus 50 feet and your headings plus or minus 10 degrees, and when you're flying a, an instrument approach that you're no more than one dot one way or the other on the needles when you cross the, the, uh, the uh, Mr. Approach point, that gives you positive things to aim for. You've got targets to go for to get better and better. And you can look at this and say, well, yeah, on this flight, I'm plus or minus 75 feet, so I need to work on that a little bit. It gives you some way to measure yourself and to improve. So that's the concept of mastery. Find out ways that you can get even better at what you're doing. And then it proactively, in my opinion, anyhow, proactively uh, enhances my enjoyment of flight. I feel better about myself when I fly very, very well. And I feel less well about myself if I catch myself making mistakes. We're always going to make mistakes. You, wanna, you just have to work on correcting them. Uh, one of my favorite things to tell instrument pilots is that instrument flight is the process of constantly fixing what you just did wrong. So that's what really mastery is all around. Find out your little mistakes and figure out so you're not going to do that next time. All right. Almost every one of you has one of these. What is this in the picture? It's your pilot certificate, your pilot's license. Almost every one of you has those. And if you are a certificated pilot, this is what you think of. I've got this piece of paper, or maybe I've laminated it. You know, it's a really nice hard plastic one now we have now. I've got this little card that says, I can fly an airplane. So this is what we think of ourselves when we think of ourselves as a pilot. What do your passengers expect of you? This is what your passengers think you are as a pilot. You could be a 60-hour private pilot, and this is what your passengers think and expect of you. They think that you are going to exercise the same skill, judgment, and care as the guy who flew them across the Pacific to, uh, to Australia or something because they don't know any better. They expect us to fly to a higher standard. Our job is to prove them right. We've got to keep this going. So think of yourself as the captain of your aircraft, because you very literally are. All right, so to pursue mastery, we take our flight reviews. 
The purpose of a flight review, as intended, is to ensure that we can at least meet that minimum standard to fly. Our, actually, there are no specific standards for the flight review, except that you have to do an hour of ground covering one or two items, you know, flight operation rules and things, and an hour in the airplane doing whatever your instructor feels you should see in order for them to sign you off. And frankly, sometimes this gets into a buddy sort of thing and you go up and you fly around a little bit and sign them off. Um, I'm not going to name a name because I'm in an FAA building, but I have a good friend who lives in a rural part of the central United States and he has a business trip occasionally to a fairly large city in the central United States. It takes half an hour to fly there in his airplane. So every two years, he gets this buddy of his who is an instructor who usually gets to fly around in Cessna 150s and said, okay, come with me in my very well-equipped Beechcraft Bonanza. We're going to fly half an hour up. I've got a business trip. We'll fly half an hour back. We'll talk on the way so that covers my hour of discussion and my hour of flight and you sign me off. They don't practice anything. He hasn't done anything to try to master the aircraft. He really hasn't even confirmed that he meets a minimum standard, but you can get away with that, unfortunately. So we want to do better than that. Look at the sort of things that you face with the type of airplane you fly and come to your flight review. Before you do your flight review, talk to your, your instructor and say, these are the things I'd like to work on. I would like to do A, B, and C, and then D, D being whatever you feel I need to work on in addition to that. But go into a flight, design your own flight review around the things that you've discovered in yourself and your regular flying that you need to do even better. And you need to focus on three different areas. You need to work on airmanship. You need to work on flight by reference to instruments. If you're instrument rated, that'll be a lot of time perhaps. If you're not instrument rated, this is a good time to get some, some hood time. That will do two things. It will protect you in an inadvertent weather encounter if you're in an emergency situation, but it's also loggable toward that 40 hours if you decide to eventually work on your instrument rating as well. And most importantly, or equally importantly now, you need to work on the automation of your aircraft. I do a lot of flight reviews, <clears throat> and most of the people in my demographic hold an instrument rating. Very frequently, I will get somebody who says, well, you know, I want to do an instrument proficiency check, and oh, by the way, let's sign that off as a flight review as well. So if we do the hour ground and hour flight as a minimum, and I can't do an IPC in under an hour, you can't cover everything you have to do in an IPC in under an hour, we will meet that requirement, and it's perfectly legal, and I do it all the time that I sign them off for a flight review as well as an IPC. However, I always even if they just want the IPC and don't want the flight review right now, I always do stalls, power on, power off stalls, and go arounds, because those are the situations, the loss of control in flight situations that historically are most likely to kill somebody. So even if you do a flight, even if you do an IPC, I'm doing sort of a mini flight review there as well. Talk to your instructor, trust me, they're probably tired of doing, you know, power on, power off, left turn, right turn, one, two, three, four, five landings, call it good. They're looking for some good ideas to mix it up as well and, and work together with your instructor to develop the flight review you need. Very frequently now, flight reviews consist of helping somebody transition to the latest equipment they put in their airplane. And that's a good use of a flight review, but also throw in some of those basic stick and rudder things as well because that's what usually kills people. It might be that they get distracted by the automation and then ultimately lose control, but you need to be able to handle both. 
So think in terms of your currency in three different areas. Flying the airplane, flying the automation, and flying by instruments, and design your reviews and maybe even do more frequently than just once every two years to make sure you're covering all your bases. <clears throat> flying from point A to point B only allows you the benefit of the experience that you get flying from point A to point B. I, go, I have people come to me, I, I learned a long time ago there is very little correlation between the pilot's total flying hours in the logbook and their competence in flying a specific airplane. Now the higher time a pilot, the more quickly usually they can pick up things about an individual airplane, and generally they, they do better, but that does not automatically mean that they're doing a great job. You've probably heard the old saying that you can have 1,000 hours of experience or you could have one hour of experience 1,000 times. My buddy who does those half-hour flight reviews is getting one hour experience every two years, but it's the same hour of experience. He's not doing anything different. You can think of our total learning package as consisting of two different parts, experience and training. Experience is learning from what happens to you. And the more experience you get, the more things will happen, and so therefore, the more you will learn. Training is learning from the experience of others, because number one, as they say, you'll never live long enough to make all of the mistakes, and number two, if you're lucky, you'll never see things like engine failures or fires or things like that, but you have to be ready just in case. So your focus, not only in your flight reviews, but as you go between the flight reviews, to gain mastery of this element you're trying to, to master, the, the flight environment, think in terms not only of what experience you're getting, but also adding, it to, adding to it the experience of others. Now, experience is usually a social, excuse, excuse me, experience is usually a solo activity. It's something we do on our own. Training is something that we do with others. Now it may be with an instructor, it may be in a group like this, it may be talking with your friends at the airport, it could be reading something online, listening some, to some really good audio stuff, but you've got a world of training out there available out there and what training, all training is, is learning from the experiences of someone else. So keep on training, make every flight a training flight. When I say this, sometimes people think, well, all right, you're drumming up business for flight instructors. But here's the key. You don't have to have an instructor on board in order to get training benefit from a flight. Who here likes to go do a, uh, you know, a weekend pancake run or go get a hamburger or something like that in their airplane? Right? Who's to say you can't, you know, if we're going to fly over to get some pancakes, who's to say, well, today I can do a short field takeoff and a short field landing? and maybe I'll do one steep turn circle on the way. It costs you absolutely nothing more to do it because you were going to make the trip anyhow, and you get to practice. Instead of just normal takeoff, fly, normal landing, throw something in there. All right, today I'm going to practice. If you're a twin engine pilot, today I'm going to, using zero thrust and using appropriate safety protocols in case you have to do a go around, say, okay, I'm going to practice some single engine maneuvering on my way on this, on this trip I'm making today, just for a few minutes to get the habits. If you fly an airplane with a lot of automation like I do now, I have a, a rule that I like to hand fly at least 10 minutes of every hour in route. All right, I'm going to click off the autopilot for at least 10 minutes, even if I'm in IMC and it's turbulent and everything, so I get some training benefit out of the flight I was going to make anyhow. So let's make every flight a training flight. Here's a good example of that. It's something that I 
you may have seen before on my website or even in here a couple of years ago. It's something I call the second stripe challenge. The second stripe being the second stripe on the runway. And you can substitute for the boxes, you know, the landing touchdown zones, whatever you want to do. But I call it the second stripe challenge because not every airplane, air, airport has the, uh, the full instrument uh, markings. A standard marked runway has stripes that are 120 feet long. So the white stripe here is 120 feet long. On the standard marked runway, the space between a, a stripe and the next stripe is 80 feet long. So the combination of one stripe and one space is 200 feet. This is a real good way to get some way to judge your own accuracy in flying the airplane. Now, if a runway is not exactly the right length so that the stripes and spaces work out, the way that the, uh, the, the marking requirements, the FAA marking requirements are written, they will make up the difference. They'll make them a little shorter or longer if they have to in the middle of the runway. But on the, first, on, the, on the ends of the runway, I think it's the first third of the runway on each end, they meet the standard marking. So we've got a good target to work for. And we're going to challenge ourselves to try to hit our target every time we go. Who here has a private recreational or sport pilot certificate? All right. We all had one at one point if we have a higher level of certification, but in those airplanes, for our minimum private pilot standard, we are required to land a normal landing within 400 feet, minus zero feet from an identified touchdown zone to 400 feet. Guess what? That's two stripes, two runway stripes. Doesn't look like a whole lot when you think about it there. At least one time in your life, on your practical test, you were able to do that. Hopefully at least twice, because your instructor signed you off as proficient to do it, but at least once in your life, you were able to, they were able to say, hit that spot, and you were able to do it within two stripes. All right. If you are a commercial pilot, the tolerance is cut in half. And I never really thought about it until a couple of years ago when I started to put this presentation together, that basically for your commercial pilot certificate, he's saying, your, your examiner is saying, land on that stripe, and that's how accurate you have to be to pass the test. Also, that's the same tolerance for the short field landing criteria for the private recreational and sports certificate. Basically, land on that stripe. And again, at least once in your life, you were able to do that to, to the satisfaction of an examiner. So you should be able to do that all the time. That's a minimum standard of accuracy. One of the most common causes of uh, accident scenarios, one of the most common accident scenarios in heavier, larger airplanes, especially, is running off the far end of the runway. And on shorter runways, it happens to the lighter airplanes like most of us fly. And usually, the witness statement will be something to the effect that he was coming in, I could see he was a little fast, and they floated, floated, and floated, and floated, and finally touched down on the you know, second half of the runway and went off the end of the runway. So what was the, you know, the probable cause? Runway excursion. The actual accident was the result of not being accurate on their glide path and uh, power management skills and not aiming for a specific spot. So if you get used to doing the second stripe challenge every time you fly, it's going to be natural for you on the day you operate on a short runway or a heavier airplane or higher density altitude. You're going to aim for that accuracy.
And that's what I'm looking for you to do. Do that every time you fly. Grade yourself on whether or not you made it. You won't always make it. But if you're consistently not making it, well, I need to go up and practice this a little bit and maybe even include that in my next flight review. Let's do a whole lot of pattern work and get, get this down. Or you might even get, get an instructor before it's time for the flight review. So aim for that second stripe. All right. Now, I also throw in a whole lot of other stuff for my students. I won't, I'll, I'll very quickly breeze through it, but what I'm aiming for, not only am I touching down where I want to do, but I'm doing it at the right speed in the right airplane configuration, and I'm doing it with the runway stripe between my, my, uh, the main wheels of my airplane, and I'm doing it without hitting the airplane down hard. I can use this sort of criterion to, uh, criteria to grade myself on my landing. Any naval aviators out there? They get graded on every single landing. There is an officer standing on the deck whose job it is to say how good or bad your landings are, and you hear about it. Well, we need to do that for ourselves as well. Challenge yourself to always touch down on the second stripe. If you're coming down final approach and you're not going to make it, and you're not going to hit the second stripe, uh, the, you know, the second or the third stripe, go, go around now. Don't wait until you get down in the flare to see if you're going to make it or not. All right, second technique that you might use. In how many instrument-rated pilots here? Okay, good selection, or good, good number of the group here. And, of course, you can apply these same uh, level of uh, accuracy to visual operations, but this one's primarily for the IFR folks. Something that I, I figured out a long time ago, and I'm not claiming any necessarily ownership of this all, but it's something I call the rule of tens for flying an instrument approach. It gives me some targets to aim for. Well, what am I talking about with the rule of tens? Who knows? Here we go. Attitude indicator. Yours may look a little differently than this. You might have some big PFD or something like that, but you have some sort of attitude depiction that has markings on it that show you how far up or down below the horizon line the nose of your airplane is pointed. In this case, the nose is slightly below the horizon. It's somewhere in the five to seven degree nose down range here. It's between the horizon line and the 10 below line. But we have a range. Uh, I, I like to ha have a range of pitch attitudes that I allow myself to use during an instrument approach. All right, so you're coming in, you're level, you hit the final approach fix, you start your descent down the glide path. And typically in most light airplanes, depending on how the airplane's configured, if you have retractable gear or flap, if you're using flaps or whatever, you will be coming down at somewhere slightly below the horizon on an ILS or on an RNAV generated glide path. You'll be slightly nose low. It's about three degrees nose down in a lot of airplanes to follow that down. So you're coming down, let's say three degrees, and that coincides with your glide path. If you're a little bit high on glide path, how do you fix that? You can pull a little power, and when you pull a little power, what happens to the pitch attitude of the airplane? It drops just a little bit. If it's a small deviation, you can leave the power where it is and just make a couple, you know, make a, a degree or two change here. But anyhow, you may pitch down a little bit to get back on that glide path. You don't want to pitch down too steeply or you'll fly right through it, and then you're going to have to come back up at it. So you want a small, a gradual transition, like coming on a freeway on, a, on pass. You don't want to make a 90-degree boulevard turn. You want to make a freeway on-ramp type reacquisition of your glide path. 
<clears throat> so if your normal attitude is, let's say, three degrees below the horizon, might be, what might be the most nose down you would ever want to do? Okay, five, seven, maybe 10 at the very most. If you're having to push down more than 10 degrees to get back on glide path, it's time to miss the approach and figure it out a different way. On the other hand, let's say you're a little below your glide path, you're coming down, maybe you're, you're below it and paralleling it because you're at a three degree nose down attitude, but you're below your generated glide path and you need to reacquire it. How do you get back up to the glide path? You're gonna add a little power and that's gonna pitch the nose up a little bit. If it's just a small deviation, you can do it with pitch alone, but you add a little power, you bring the nose up a little bit. How much do you allow the nose to come up? Because when the nose starts to come up, the airspeed's gonna start to move and that's gonna change the trim and it's all gonna fall apart on you. What I do is I let the nose come up no more than level on the horizon. And I'll bring the nose level and fly level until I reacquire the glide slope, and then I'll put the nose back down where it's supposed to be to maintain glide path. So I have a range of 10 degrees of motion from zero on the horizon to 10 degrees below the horizon. That's my rule of tens for pitch attitude on an approach. And if I have to bring, if, if I'm so radically low, I need to bring the nose above the horizon line to reacquire glide slope in time, I'm going to go ahead and initiate the missed approach right then. I'm not going to try to fix it. I'll get behind it. I'll get into a pilot-induced oscillation, and it'll all be a mess. If I'm so high above glide path, I have to put the nose down more than 10 degrees to scream at the earth, I'm going to go ahead and miss the approach. I'm, I'm too far off, I'm, I'm very likely to blow right through it and end up too low and in the trees. So I've got a range of 10. My rule of 10s for pitch attitude is from zero degrees to 10 degrees nose down. So try it out in your airplane, see if it works. Rule of 10 works for heading as well. You're on a localizer, you're on a G, GPS course inbound, you're flying that old ADF or whatever, you've got a course indication that's pointing toward where you wanna be going, in this case, the airport. Who here has an airplane that has a heading bug on your heading indication? A lot of them do, all right? You may not have that, but many do. Have, have you ever noticed how wide, how big that heading bug is? Guess what? It's about five degrees to the left of your selected course and about five degrees to the right. You have a range of 10 degrees of motion within your heading bug. And that's there to give you a precise correction value without blowing through your localizer one way or the other. What I do is I'm coming down, coming down the glide path. I've got my heading bug set. I'm following a heading. Remember that your primary job is basic attitude flying and the navigational instruments just tell you where to point the airplane. You're not chasing the needle. You're doing basic attitude flying, correcting for where the needles go. And I've got everything set up. Maybe I have a little bit of a crosswind and I figured out I've got to spin the bug over just a little bit. And if I hold that heading, I stay centered on the needle. And I descend and the wind changes or I didn't have it quite right or something changes a little bit. And the needle starts to go a little bit off to one side. It goes off to my left, perhaps. So what I need to do is I need to turn a little bit to the left to get that needle to come back in. And as soon as I start to see any motion off to the left-hand side, all I do is I make a slight heading change, and actually it works really well just with the rudders, depending on your airplane. Make a slight heading change, just enough, don't move the bug, just enough that your heading is now on the left edge of the heading bug. You've made a five degree change. And once again, you're doing this freeway on-ramp thing, a nice gradual reacquisition of your glide path. So it starts to go to my left, I come to the left edge of the bug, 
as the needle comes back to the center, I come back to the center of the bug. It starts to go to the right, I go to the right edge of the bug, but not beyond. It starts to come back to the center, I come back to my centered condition. And if I need to fudge it just a little bit, if I need to move the heading bug one way or the other as the winds change, that's fine. But I stay within five degrees either side or the rule of tens, no more than a 10 degree heading correction, especially inside the final approach fix. If I'm so far off that I have to make a bigger correction than that, I'm probably going to be in one of those cases where you're, the needle's over here and then all of a sudden it swings over to there and I've got to go back and forth. And I'd better miss the approach. And if you do this, it gives you some targets to aim for. And also, it, at least for me, it prompts me to catch the minor deviations and fix them before it becomes a major deviation. The needle even just begins to move a little bit to the left. I'm going to come over to the left edge of the bug until it centers again. So the rule of tens for pitch is 0 to 10 below. The rule of tens for heading is plus or minus 5 degrees of the heading that takes you down the middle of the glide slope, or the localizer. And then airspeed. Airspeed is a consequence of doing these other things, with or without changes in power. You will have a target airspeed that works out for your particular type of aircraft in the configuration you tend to fly it. But you'll end up having a stable airspeed that you will try to fly in instrument approach. If you don't know what power setting and pitch attitude and configuration results in a predictable airspeed and fly that airspeed on an approach, then you need to work on that sort of thing in your next flight review or when you practice your airplane. But in general, at least in the, the high-performance singles and the light twins, if, you make, if you're within the 10-degree range of pitch attitude, most of the time you'll be within about a plus or minus 5-knot range of your target airspeed. In other words, you're within ten, a 10-knot range of airspeeds. So I've got a range of pitch attitudes, a range of headings, and a range of resulting airspeeds. And not only am I flying down the glide path flying down the instrument approach, watching where the needles are and making corrections. I know how to make those corrections, very small within some defined boundaries. And if I see any of these parameters go outside of the rule of 10, right. last year it was the fake machine guns. OK. All right. If I see myself going outside of one of those parameters, it's time to miss the approach, especially if I'm inside the final approach fix. So, we can pass, you can pass your instrument check ride, and you can pass an instrument proficiency check being a lot sloppier than this. You're allowed to get, how, how much deflection are you allowed to get on a, on a localizer needle, for instance? Three quarters deflection. That's way the heck out there. Focus on making small corrections and making those corrections soon enough that you never get more than a dot one way or the other on the needles. That's what I aim for. I'm not always there, but that's what I'm aiming for. And when I don't make it, I critique myself and I practice until I can. All right, vertical speed works out pretty well as well. Uh, in most airplanes that are, uh, most light airplanes that are IFR capable airplanes, you will come down on an ILS approach somewhere in the five to 600 foot per minute rate of descent. If your ground speed is 90 knots, it takes about 500 foot per minute rate of descent to come down a three degree glide path. If your ground speed is 120 knots, it takes about 600 foot per minute. So in most general aviation airplanes, you will most of the time be somewhere in the five to, five to 600 foot per minute rate of descent coming down a generated glide path. 
So if you're making these other adjustments, what you will see with the vertical speed is at most, when you bring the nose up to level on the horizon in order to get back on the glide path if you're low, what's your vertical speed going to look like? It's going to be about zero. Well, you've leveled off just long enough to get back on. And if you push the nose to, you know, 7 or 10 degrees nose down to get back on the glide slope from above, this will end up at usually, in the Cessna 172 through the Baron class anyhow, this will end up somewhere in a thousand foot per minute maximum. So I have 10 hundreds here as well. I've got a rule of tens for vertical speed. Level zero to 10 one hundreds or 1,000 foot per minute. And if I, if I look over there and I have to climb in order to get back on glide path, that tells me I'm, I'm messing it up. I need to get, miss the approach. If I have to go down more than 1,000 foot per minute to get back on glide path, I'm in trouble and I need to do something different. So those are the rules of tens for very precisely flying instrument approaches and aiming for increased mastery of instrument flight. Lastly, and I'm going to go through this fairly quickly because, uh, number one, I covered it in much more detail last year, but number two, I'm watching the time here a little bit. I've got, I think, uh, another third, 25 minutes, so we have time. <clears throat> I call it the bold print. Now, I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was uh, an officer in the United States Air Force. Uh, I was a Minuteman ICBM missile launch control officer for four years in, in central Missouri. So the world survives today because I did my job or because I didn't do my job. We don't know yet. But prior to that time, I went through the Air Force's flight screening program at officer training school at Hondo, Texas. And we flew the mighty T-41 Muscolero, which was an off-the-shelf 1965 or 1967 Cessna 172, stripped down, tricked out, uh, Four-point shoulder harnesses, you get to wear your flight jacket, Air Force marked Cessna 172. And in this program, we did a lot of ground school ahead of time, and we had to memorize a lot of procedures and techniques and things. And one of the things that we did on days that we flew was a mass briefing before we took off. We had this room, where this classroom, and there were three rows of tables and five... five uh, uh, tables in each row, maybe six in each row, and two seats behind each table, and then an instructor, and those were that instructor's two students. The instructors were all civilians, but we treated them like officers. We were all officer candidates or officer trainees. We called them OTs. This was called the Flight Screening Program Officer Trainee, or SF, uh, S, uh, FSPOT. We called ourselves fish pots, and so I was a fish pot. And we would get into this mass briefing room, and they would tell us about the weather and all this other stuff that's going on today, the runways in use, the, where we were going to do our practice areas. And then we got to the quiz. And we all took turns as briefing officers, so we were all merciless with each other. We had the opportunity to take out our frustrations on one another. So the briefing officer would say, Fishpot Turner, and I'd come to attention. A lot thinner then. I'd come to attention. And they would say, engine fire in flight. And I would have to, from memory, recite the checklist steps for engine fire in flight. Mixture to idle cutoff, fuel selector off, battery and electric off. That's what you needed to know without having to look it up. Those checklist steps were printed in bold print in our flap fold-out, you know, the real cool Velcro, Velcro around your knee Air Force-type checklist. They were called the bold print checklist items. 
the things that I had to memorize because I needed to do them quickly and correctly in the proper order and I didn't have time to look them up if I really needed them. Now in the civilian world we don't usually have bold print in our checklists. Uh, if you're flying one of the very latest Bonanzas, G38s, G58s, uh, G36s, G58s, don't miss, it's been a long week. All right, they have bold print. If you, Cirrus has bold print, some of the new Cessnas have bold print. Most of them don't identify, they don't distinguish anything that's a memory item or not. So it's kind of up to you to figure out which ones are for your airplane. We'll get into that in just a moment. But you need to know some things without having time to look them up. And then everything else you do have time to look up. So my answer was I'd rattle off the bold print items and then I, I was allowed to say refer to checklist. And I was required to pull out the checklist and read the remaining steps. So I learned what I needed to do in an emergency. I don't have to memorize the entire emergency procedure section of the handbook. I just need to rem remember three or four steps on four or five different checklists, and that covers everything. Anything else, I've got time to pull out the checklist and deal with it. An alternator failure is not an emergency. It might become one if you don't deal with it, but you, hey, my alternator's out. What do I need to do? Don't start flipping switches. Get out the checklist. Engine fire, you've got to do bam, 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 and then you've got, if you have time, you've got the checklist. So we're going to talk in a moment about finding the bold print for your individual airplane. So you've got something to work with, something to practice on. Now one of the other things that we, I've never seen done in civilian aviation, we did in the fish pot program, which I guess technically was sort of semi-civilian, but it was contractors. One of the things we did was uh, what uh, the FAA has wisely aimed us for in maybe the last 15 years or so, and that's scenario-based training. When you go practice emergency procedures with your flight instructor, they probably say, okay, engine failure, glide, 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 glide. All right, let's go around. That was good. All right, what do you do if you have a radio failure? Da, da, da. Okay, that's good. Uh, in, you know, engine fire, what do you do? Da, da, da. Okay, that's good. Let's go do something else. We think of emergency procedures in terms of isolated events. What we had to do in the fish pot program, and I try to do with people I train now, is think about the whole scenario. Because I would, they would say engine fire in flight, and I had to one, two, three, refer to checklist. Oh, guess what? One, two, and three caused my engine to quit. So that drives, after I refer to the checklist, that drives the next emergency checklist, which is glide procedure. Bam, bam, bam. Okay, I've got two or three memory items, then refer to checklist. And that means, oh, landing, off-airport landing checklist. We had just one or two things, pop open the door, that sort of thing. All right? And that leads to soft field landing, which we included. We included the soft field landing as part of the technique. And then that ultimately leads to evacu the evacuation checklist. So when, when I was trained in emergency procedure and when I try to, to in flight reviews, train people on emergency procedures, I don't talk about just one checklist. I talk about start here and wait. Every, every checklist ends in exiting the aircraft on the ground. Whether you make an off-airport landing, have to do an emergency descent on the way or anything like that, think in terms of where it starts to the point you're on the ground and you'll be ready for those sorts of situations should they ever happen to you. All right. What are the bold print items? Bold print items that you must do immediately in the proper order in order to save lives. So look at the checklist in the airplane for the airplanes that you fly and look and say, do I, is this something that I would have to do right away in order to save lives? Yeah, maintain control of the airplane. This, yeah, I've got to do those things without having time to look them up. 
and you know, highlight them or something, make up some flashcards, make your own bold print. So you've got something to study. And what you'll find is you only have to memorize maybe a dozen things, if that, and I'm talking individual steps, five or six different checklists, each with two or three steps on them. That's all you have to memorize out of the handbook. Everything else you've got time to look it up. Anything that does not require immediate proper response to save lives is a refer to checklist item. So keep that handbook handy. I used to get in airplanes with people who would take out the checklist and, and the handbook and they'd be very good about using it for starting the engine and the before takeoff checklist and the run up and then they'd pick it up and they'd throw it in the back of the airplane like they never needed it again. Keep it where you can get to it in case you have to refer to the checklist. That's why they spend all the time writing those things. All right, so lots of emergency, sec, uh, emergency procedures checklists in your handbook. Go through them and see which ones are really emergencies. This is something else that only very new general aviation uh, handbooks tend to do. They distinguish between an emergency procedure and an abnormal procedure. An emergency procedure is one where lives and perhaps the aircraft itself are in fairly immediate danger. And then abnormal procedures where everything's okay unless you don't do something about this eventually. So an example of an emergency would be an engine fire in flight. An example of an abnormal procedure is an electrical failure or a landing gear won't extend sort of failure. There's nothing you have to memorize on an abnormal procedures checklist. Go in there and see what are the ones that are really likely to kill you and which ones are just major inconveniences but they're not going to be a problem. All right. Let's talk a little bit, just to hone this up a little bit, on engine failures. Uh, my numbers here go for Beach Bonanzas, and I haven't updated them in the last decade. I'm about ready to do the next uh, big update on this. But this is kind of interesting. I did do some studies uh, for our Beechcraft Pilot Proficiency Program that date back to even before I was working at ABS. And what I did is I looked for Beechcraft Bonanza and Debonair airplanes, which are very similar. And I looked at the blue column here are the total number of NTSB reported accidents in that type of airplane in the 1980s, the 90s, and the 2000s. And the red ones were the, were the uh, NTSB reports that involved engine failures in these airplanes. So you could see the engine failures were in the 80s and the 90s, a uh, little less than a third of all of the reported mishaps, and started to become a fairly significant thing in the 2000s. Now, if you're one of our ABS members or you're in the Bonanza or Cirrus or Cessna 210 community, you're in that IL-520, 470, 550, IL-540 world, there's been a lot of talk out there in you know, the 2000s and, and after, and this goes through 2010, that's why I haven't updated it yet, but in the 2000s and after, that, oh gee, our engines are starting to, you know, we're having all these engine failures all of the time, so what's up? You know, these guys, Brand X can't build an engine, that sort of thing. But if you look at what actually happened as identified by the NTSB in these engine failures, it, it's very interesting. In the 1980s, all right, for the, each one of these, the columns of the red column is the total number of engine failures. And the blue column is the number that were directly attributed to the pilot's fuel management. Fuel exhaustion? fuel starvation. And what you see in the 80s and the 90s, about half of all of the accidents, about half of all the NTS reported engine failures, in this type of airplane anyhow, were fuel-related mishaps. Then look at the 2000, over 90%, over 90% of all 
Bonanza Baron NTSB reported engine failures between 2000 and 2010 were the result of the pilot's mismanagement of the fuel. All right. Now, you could also look at the inverse of all this and just see, and it's not too facetious to say this, look how much more reliable our engines have become. Except for us. So, if you, if you keep the fuel flowing to your engine, chances are pretty good it's going to keep running. If your engine quits, and it's quit for a reason that you can fix from where you sit in the pilot seat, it's overwhelmingly likely that it's going to be doing something with the fuel system that's going to get the engine started again. So you can think of your engine failure checklist as being, let's manipulate the fuel and see if we can get the fuel going again, and then anything else if the engine won't restart, and then we have to glide if we have to. Who here is flying a carbureted engine? All right, a lot of carbureted engines. A little bit of an exception to the rule, because I'm the Bonanza guy, I talk fuel injected all the time. A little bit of the exception to the rule, in carbureted engines, Cessna, older Cessna 172s, that sort of thing, carburetor ice is a significant factor. So you need to get the carburetor heat on in order to possibly melt the ice out if you have an engine failure. And that should be the first thing you do. You are re-establishing airflow to the engine. Your engine needs three things to operate, air, fuel, and ignition. So you're re-establishing airflow. One other reason in a carbureted engine you want to pull the carb heat first and leave it on is because it works only if hot air is blowing through the carburetor from the exhaust. The longer you wait, the cooler the air is going to be from the engine exhaust because the engine's quit. That's why you're doing this. So get the carb heat out first. So in a carbureted engine, you'll pull the, fuel, you'll pull the, uh, the air control first, the carburetor heat. But for all of us, the first thing you do is maintain control of the airplane. That's a whole lecture in its own right, but fly the airplane aim it somewhere, and then try the restart steps. In the carbureted airplane, pull the carburetor heat, then try to see if the fuel will work. If you have an airplane that has the capability of switching fuel tanks, switch to another tank. If you have an auxiliary fuel pump, activate the fuel pump per your pilot's operating handbook checklist. You'll have to customize this to your individual airplane. And make sure that your mixture control is in the full rich position. Unless you're flying a turbocharger, you pull it out and try to find something that'll work. Your engine will probably not run at its optimum level at full rich, but it should run somehow at full rich. So at least that gets you to a point you can start to work with it. All right, so you're going to, uh, in the carbureted airplanes, you're going to do the air, then fuel selector, fuel pump if you've got it, fuel mixture. Lastly, try the ignition, make sure the switch, the key switch is on, and you can talk about flipping mags. We'll talk about that in just a second. But for the carbureted folks, fly the airplane, aim it somewhere, air, fuel, fuel, fuel. Those are your bold print steps. Everything else is a refer to checklist. You just need to memorize and practice those things. For the fuel injected crowd, you don't have carburetor heat, so Maintain control of the airplane, aim somewhere, fuel, fuel, fuel. Switch your fuel tank, switch your boost pump on if you've got one consistent with your POH. Put your mixture to full rich. If that didn't work, try the ignition, make sure the switch is on. And then many fuel-injected airplanes have an alternate air control, but it should work 
automatically. So this is a last ditch effort to try to get it done. So all you need to remember is maintain control of the airplane, aim it to some place you want to be headed, and then fuel ignition and air, or fuel air ignition, depending on the order for your airplane. Let's talk briefly about the ignition. One of the things that's on the uh, engine failure checklist is to switch to, you know, you confirm that the switch is on both, and then, okay, if it's there, try switching to one mag or the other mag. Have you ever thought about, is there, is there a scenario you can envision where the engine has quit, and by going from the both position to a single mag position, it would suddenly start running again? Can you, give me a scenario. I can't come up with one. And then it occurred to me, it took a long time of, you know, I have sleepless nights over these things, I'm just strange. But anyhow, maybe that exposure to nuclear stuff in the 80s. But it occurred to me that this checklist, your engine failure checklist, doesn't necessarily say total power loss, any engine roughness, any partial power loss of power can be fixed by doing exactly the same thing. Maintain control of the airplane, aim it somewhere, then manipulate the fuel, air, and in this case, ignition controls. If you've got one magneto has slipped and the timing's off or it's misfiring or something, that's the, it will give you a rough running engine, and that's the point where you could select a single magneto. So just think, look at your checklist and come up with the bold print items for your airplane, then use the best simulator you have. Sit in your airplane when you're sitting in the hangar or at the tie-down spot, Leave the battery master switch turned off, but go ahead and actually go through the procedure. Ah, I have an engine failure in flight. I'm going to fly the airplane, aim it somewhere. Fuel tank, that didn't work. Fuel boost pump, that didn't work. Fuel mixture, that didn't work. And develop the muscle memory you need to be able to do this from memory. All right. If you have other sorts of engine failure causes, if it's something you can fix from where you sit, that procedure will work. If it's something that can't be fixed doing those things, it's not going to be fixed at all by you in the airplane, so you're going to commit to a glide. And that's when you think, okay, my scenario was rough running engine, that led to engine checklist, and that led to, okay, I need to make a landing somewhere, or a total engine failure, which leads to a glide, which leads to an off-airport landing checklist, which leads to an airplane evacuation checklist and work your way through the scenarios. All right, engine fire in flight, very similar sort of thing. The most combustible thing you've got in an engine compartment is what? Fuel. The fuel, so how do you stop a fire in flight? You stop the fuel, the mixture, the fuel selector, whatever your handbook tells you to do. And then if usually the fire will go out, if it doesn't go out, then that drives you into an emergency descent checklist to get the airplane on the ground as soon as possible. Or as we described back in the days of the flight screening program, slip the airplane so the flames go toward the instructor side of the airplane. <laughs> but anyhow, have a procedure that works and practice it. Electrical fires, same sort of thing. Just practice your procedure, figure out what's, what are the important steps and practice them. All right, so you're looking at what's critical and what's just important. The critical things are items you have to do immediately from memory without looking them up. Those are the very few items you need to memorize. Everything else you just have to practice occasionally to master your airplane. I'm going to close it up with just a short little bit here about continuing education. I'm a big proponent of the FAA Wings program. If you, don't, or if you did not register for this ahead of time, or if you need the form for Wings credit, you can fill it out here and leave it in the bucket, and you'll get FAA Wings credit for this and anything else you've done here in the uh, FAA Center. Uh, we need to, in order to master our airplanes, we need to continual, continually educate ourselves to, what did we say training was, learning from the experiences of others, in between 
the formal training events that we take for flight reviews and eyepieces and everything like that. Read and think about flying, all right? Maybe you have to do it at night when your spouse isn't looking, but whatever. Keep your head in flying. Be online. Look at good quality stuff. Don't look at just all the, the internet chat line, but look at authoritative, curated sources that are telling you information that you can trust. Fly, if you have the opportunity, fly with di different instructors. Pilots get attached to an individual flight instructor. And they like to fly with this person or that person. Well, guess what? If you fly with me, you are experiencing my biases, you are subject to my gaps in knowledge, and you are subject to any lapses that I just happen to make. So you're going to, you're going to get that one hour of experience 10 times if you come fly with me different 10 times. It's not, hopefully I'm better than that, but my point is you will learn a lot if you go fly with another instructor. You might find a technique that works better for you. They might say something in just the right way that I wasn't quite able to verbalize so that you understand something more thoroughly. So try your nuts, you know, your local instructor is going to get mad at you, but shop around a little bit and fly with another instructor pilot. Uh, I like to do that. I do, we have, at ABS, we have what's called the Beechcraft Pilot Proficiency Program, and I take that as a student once a year, and I try to do it with a different one of our instructors every year so that I'm learning what's, we're learning from them as well. All right, whoops. Design your own flight reviews, like I told you uh, earlier. Come to your, your flight instructor not saying, I need a flight review. Come saying, hey, I'm coming to do on a flight review. I'd like to practice these items plus whatever you see I, I ought to practice in addition to that. Work to the standards of the next highest certificate. You may never get beyond a private pilot certificate, but there's nothing that says that you can't work to try to be able to touch down in a normal landing on that second stripe and not beyond it. You can go out with an instructor and learn a bit, little bit about Shondells and Lazy 8s. You may never take the commercial check ride, but that doesn't mean that you can't hold yourself to that higher standard and learn the skills necessary to fly to that standard. It's very difficult and costly now to earn an airline transport pilot certificate because of changes in the regulations that make it primarily an airline-oriented event. You have to do things in some very sophisticated simulators, so it's difficult and expensive to do so. That doesn't mean that you can't go with your instructor pilot and say, hey, let's work so that under the old rules, I would have been able to pass an ATP check ride. Let's go out and get me as good as an ATP, even if I'll never actually hold that certificate because the rule changed. Drive yourself to master your airplane. All right. Lastly, hold yourself to a standard. It's the little things that count. I like to taxi right on the center line. All right. If I, I shouldn't be drifting one way or the other. That tells me that I'm appropriately focusing outside of the airplane, that I'm I'm precisely controlling the aircraft. It also tells me that the day that I landed an unfamiliar airport at night and I'm on a narrow taxiway or a narrow runway, my, uh, my discipline is to keep the, the center line or the taxi, uh, the runway center lines or the taxi lane lines between my main wheels and I'll be less likely to run into something. So the little things that make you even more precise as a pilot are going to help you master the aircraft. Uh, your passengers probably won't notice, but they expect it of you because you are the pilot in command. Eventually, all of us are going to get the end of our flying careers. And I get this phone call a lot from members at the American Bonanza Society. I can't 
pass a medical certificate anymore, I can't even do the basic med, or this or that or the other thing, I can no longer fly my airplane and I am incredibly sad. And what I suggest to them is find a young up-and-coming instructor pilot and go fly. You can do two things. Number one, you can still fly your airplane that way for a while. Number two, you can teach this new instructor what you have learned in 40 years of flying an airplane. You will accelerate their flying career and enhance their instructional ability by decades if you take this opportunity to pass along what you learn. So if you're at the point where you've had to stop or if you're getting to the point where you're thinking, well, it, the time is going to come, start to use that opportunity to pass along some information to the, to the next generation of instructors. Go ahead and pay them for their time. Trust me, instructors don't earn all that much. It won't cost you all that much money to do this. But be, you know, what, what do wise old leaders and thinkers do? They're like Yoda. They pass on what they know to the next crowd. So think of yourself as part of a continual process of educating the next generation of flying your airplanes. All right. So safety isn't a strategy. I can't tell you go out there and be safe. It's an outcome. I can go out there and tell you, make sure you always land on that second or third runway stripe. And if you do that, you'll never run off the end of the runway. Work on mastering your airplane. All right, uh, there are my websites, uh, the American Bonanza Society on top, my mastery flight training on the bottom. That's what my web page, my personal web page looks like. Trust me, if you, if you, um, Google flying lessons weekly or you Google mastery flight training, you'll get there. I've published way too much stuff, so I'm all over the place. But you're welcome to look at either or both of those sites uh, to get more information. This is being recorded. Eventually, it will be available on the FAA's website, so you'll be able to see this over again if you want to. If you have any questions at all, uh, you can come see me in the ABS tent the rest of the week here. You can look at my site there and email me. Uh, and I'll even send you a copy of the slides if you want them. But uh, the, the goal here is to be even better as a pilot, and thanks for coming and learning about mastering your aircraft.